Good morning. I am so glad to be with you today. I love y'all, and it's just special every time we gather. It was great in Sunday school being reminded of God's presence among and in His people individually and corporately. And it's just a joy when we come together and His presence is among us, promised and experienced as we gather. Today's a really special day. Uh, Miss Audrey Brazil, are you still here? Do you mind if I ask you to stand up? Just just for a second, Miss Audrey, can you stand up? Yeah, there she comes. I want y'all to look. Give her a hand. She is going to hit 97 on Tuesday. 97. Her family's gathered with her today. The flowers are in her honor. And I hope when I'm 97, I'll still be going to church. If I live to be 97... It's just sweet to see, you know, when she came in today, she knocked about 90% of our excuses off. She did. She just, and it's a joy and love to see folks who are serving the Lord in these years and uh, rejoice with her family. Hope you all have a great week and good time together this week. What a sweet, sweet time of fellowship. You saw earlier the little advertisement that came up for the North American Mission Board One of the things that makes us uniquely Southern Baptists is a thing called cooperation. And we have a thing called the cooperative program. And every time you give an offering here, uh, of any offering to the general fund, 10 cents of every dollar that you give actually goes to the cooperative program. And that means it enables Louisiana Baptists to grow the work of the gospel in Louisiana. It allows the North American Mission Board to grow the labor of Christ in North America. It allows the International Mission Board to grow the work of missions worldwide. It allows your seminaries to enroll and house and educate students at an incredibly discounted rate if they are from Southern Baptist churches. And one of the things that makes us uniquely Southern Baptist is the cooperative program. And so the North American Mission Board Annie Armstrong Easter offering is part of our cooperation. While about 50% of their funding comes in annually through your regular giving, that is your what we call undesignated budget giving, your tithing, Another 50% of their funding is raised in this special offering called the Annie Armstrong Easter Offering for North American Missions. And so be cooperative and give as God leads you. I want to also congratulate you. I bragged on you when I first shared our financial needs two weeks ago. I bragged on you that you're a generous people and then I shared how serious of a pinch we were in, and you just rose to the occasion and have been giving so generously. I'll be able to give you a more detailed report in a couple of weeks, but I'm seeing already of just an incredible generosity in making up for that shortfall and replenishing those areas that we had to take out of, that we didn't need to and weren't supposed to take out of. We're really thankful for your generosity. And so now... I'm going to ask you to keep doing what you're doing. Some of you have made a one-time generous offering, just sacrificial. You just gave and really thankful. And I've asked others to step up and give one extra tithe a month, 
one week's worth of tithe a month for three months, uh, March, April, and May. And then I invited you, if you've not ever been a regular giver, to, to do that. And you're doing it. And I want to say thank you and let you know that I appreciate you and your generosity. Now, join me in the Lord's Word in First Samuel. I had Steve read a lengthy passage because it's one story. It's one story of a man and God's voice. And our theme in experiencing God over the last week has been obeying the voice of the Lord. When He speaks, us responding in obedience, obedient behavior and obedient attitude and obedient action. And so we're kind of going to look at a guy, Saul, who didn't do that, and what the outcome of that was, and how sad of a story it is to see him. I want to go back to what we introduced last week. When we started the message last week, I shared with you from a sermon that Jonathan Edwards had written that kind of explained that God went to the great lengths that He went to in creation and then in Christ to communicate to you that He desires a personal relationship with you through which you would be forgiven of your sins and you would be happy in Him. You'd be truly, joyfully, satisfactorily happy in Him because He's the only one who can actually make you happy. And that God made the universe and sent Christ for that reason, to display His worth and glory that you might love Him, know Him, serve Him, and enjoy Him. Now, I want to remind you of a quote, and I put it at the beginning of the message today. C.S. Lewis said it this way, God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from Himself, because it is not there. There is no such thing. If you are somehow on a journey right now trying to be at peace and happy, and you're seeking that in anything other than God, I want to tell you that you're seeking something impossible. God can't give you a happiness apart from Himself. And so, what we're going to see today is the life of a man who sought happiness, satisfaction, joy, apart from God. Now, the way I broke the message up, I wanted to, for simplicity's sake, just give you three words to take home that, that are, are important to let you kind of uh, chew the cud later as you think back over the message. The first word is simply the sending the sending. God is a sending God. God had only one son, and his son was a missionary. And so God is a sending God. And everything that he does in the context of a relationship is that in a relationship, he first sent someone to you so that you could have that relationship, whether it was a parent who gave the gospel to you or whether it goes back as far as 
the first English Bible so that you could read. Or whether it was a godly Sunday school teacher or somebody who knocked on your door. A preacher or a teacher. A spouse, a child, a parent, somebody, a sibling. God has been sending people to others for a relationship. But God sends people also on other tasks. Prior to the coming of Christ, one of the things that God did was that He sent Israel to be a pure and a holy people through which He would bring the Messiah. And in their sending, sometimes it was sending them for judgment. And that's what is happening in Saul's life. Saul's being sent for judgment. A group of people called the Amalekites had attacked Israel when they were weak and kind of not ready for battle, and they harassed them, and they were murderous, and God told the Amalekites when it all went down, this is going to come back to you, and it does. And so he sends Saul as the king of Israel to bring about the judgment on a group of people. And that judgment is fierce. That judgment is complete and total destruction. Every living thing, from old to young, every animal, everything, that destruction is complete. And so when we come into the story, Saul is king and God is sending him. And he has a mission. And he's supposed to carry the mission out. So he gets the mission in chapter 15, verses 1 through 3. You see the missions given. Steve read it. You go carry this out. Now, a lot of folks get troubled when they run into passages like this. When you read in verse 3, Now go and strike Amalek, and utterly destroy all that he has, and do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. That kind of makes us a little freaked out. We get a little... In fact, I was in seminary, and I remember a, a young lady came to me one time and she said, I just don't believe. Now, she was in seminary with me. She said, I just don't believe in the God of the Old Testament. I mean, all this killing and all this. Here's the way that I have coped with it. They belong to Him. And He can do whatever He wishes with them. That's how I've coped with it. Humans belong to God. He can do with them whatever He wishes. That's why he gives issues of illustration like, I'm the potter and you're the clay. He's saying, doesn't the potter have the right over his vessels to do with what he wants? And so we have to leave the hand of sovereignty in God's hand alone. And trust him that even in judgment, he is both good, just, and also merciful. So there's a mission here, and they're sent on a mission. And they don't do very well. The description of the mission picks up in verse 4. And so we'll move to the second word. The second word is the sinning. So we can take this home easily. The sending and the sinning. God is a sending God. He has things that He is going to do. Things that He wants, desires, and pleases to do through us. And so He sends us. And when we choose not to do what He has sent us for, there's only one way to describe that. We're sinning. However you package that up, however you want to wrap it, however you want to box it, whatever bow you want to tie on it, it's that. When we don't do what God sent us for, 
what are we doing? We're sinning. So if today, if today, me or you are here, and we're not doing what God sent us to do, guess what we're doing? What are we doing? It's hard to say that about our own sin. We say that about Saul. What, what, a, what a dumb sinner. But when we have to say, if I'm here today and I'm not doing what God sent me for, I'm therefore a... And I'm in the process of... Mm, that's harder to digest. And so, God is ascending God. Sometimes He's sending for judgment, Old Testament particularly. Not in the New Testament. In the New Testament, He's sending us for salvation. God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that through Him He might be, or excuse me, we might be saved. And so we have a different mission than Israel did, but mission's a mission. And Saul had one, and he sent, and he's got a job to do. Now, I want to talk to you just real quick about sending, because sometimes we frame all of our sending stuff in really big, complex packages. Saul's was a pretty serious and pretty complex package. Go attack a group of people, wipe them all out, kill every animal, just total destruction. It's pretty complex to work through. Sometimes our being sent is very simple. Be a good husband. Maybe that's just what you were sent for. That that's how the gospel is going to be formed in your family. Be a good husband. That your children are simply, that's your mission. You're not going to, you're not going to Mozambique. You're going to 2515 Donahue Ferry Road. That's where I live. And you're just supposed to live it out right there inside the four walls. And that might be your mission at your residence. God may not send you anywhere but home. Same thing for a mom, a wife. It may not be a complex leading this great big conference for women that maybe some big name person you've seen like Ann Graham Lotz. Yeah, that's a really sent person. No, God may just be sending you home to do what you're supposed to do. Be a good mom, be a good wife. Kids, He may just be sending you to school to be a good light. Right there in sixth grade or ninth grade or as a senior college students. He may not have unfolded yet what your career is, but you're sitting in a classroom with a bunch of lost people and you've been sent there. So sometimes when we think of sentness, we don't need to get overly complex. We need to rest on where God has you right now doing what you're called to do today. That's very important. But if you're not doing that little thing, Let's just, let's just take the whole big thing off the map for a second. Let's just take the Mozambique off there. And let's just do the simple thing. If you're not just doing the simple thing God called you to do, what are we doing? What is it? We're sinning. And so sometimes it's very, very simple. And I don't want to overcomplicate it. And so... God is ascending God. He is sending a people to accomplish a task all the time, always, every day, in every situation that His people are in. Sometimes it's big and complicated, like Saul. Sometimes it's as simple as what you did to your neighbor who lives beside you. 
but you're always being sent. Jesus said, as the Father sent me, so send I you. And so you're on a mission right now. If you are a follower of Jesus, you're on a mission, and you are either accomplishing it, or you are sinning. And so now we walk into Saul's life, and he's out on his mission. And we pick up in verse 4. He takes this big army, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. So you've got 210,000 people. That's a big army. They came to the city. They had the battle. But something happened. Look in verse 8. And he captured Agag. The word capture there shouldn't even be in the list. I don't remember in God's plan saying anything about capture. And then it says, verse 9, But Saul and the people spared. Now this word spared, I want you to mark that real quick. It's, I want you to go back and reflect on it because it's, the word is used in a salvation sense sometimes in the, New, I mean in the Old Testament. It really means to have pity on. And it's almost a play on words here. Because typically when the word is used, not all the time, but frequently when it's used, it's, it's used of a compassionate maneuver. Like when God spares someone from judgment. It's, it's used as a, it, it can be translated, had pity, or had, it almost has the idea of had mercy on. So you see these people coming in, they, they wipe out the infants, they wipe out the children, they wipe out the youth, they wipe out the adults. But they had pity on a king and on some really nice fat sheep and cows and goats and a few other really nice tasty morsels. And, and it's a play on words. It says that their, their hearts weren't stirred to wrestle with the pity of the children. Their hearts were stirred to wrestle with the pity of a stake. Do you see what's going on? They're messed up. Their pity is aimed wrongly. It's used in almost a pejorative or funny sense here. They had pity on the stakes and the wicked king who's been slaughtering people. Why would he make sort of a play on words here? Because it shows how their value system was upside down in this situation. What they should have had some struggle with, they had no struggle with. And what should have not bothered them at all, bothered them. And so they wind up making some really bad decisions. It says, Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the best of the oxen, the fatlings. (laughs) That's, That's like thinking about the ones you were raising specifically for your own table. You see, when people were raising sheep and ox and goats and cattle, they had a few of them they kept over on the side because those were being kept for the feast. And they were prime rib. And so the people came in, they saw, dude, we can't kill that. Let's eat it. Here's what we're going to do. We'll slaughter the people and throw a party. And we'll dress it up in the cloak of religion. And so they do. And they were not willing to destroy them utterly, but everything despised and worthless, these they utterly destroyed. In other words, 
To them it was despised and worthless, all these other things. But the cows weren't that were fat and ready for slaughter. And the king wasn't. And so you have the sending and then you have the sinning. Now, I want to break the sinning into two sections. One comes from some work that I've done in kind of pondering it. And the other comes from uh, the pastor John Piper in a sermon that he did. And he explained something here that helped me. In fact, it hurt me as I worked through it. So I'll get to that. In the sinning, I want you to note three voices in this narrative. Did we put that? Yeah. There are three voices in the narrative. Now, there's, a, there, there's another play on words here, and it's the word voice. We have the word voice, and the word voice is used several times. It's used in describing the Lord's voice in verse 22 and verse 19 and verse 20. It's used to describe the Lord's voice, the thing you're to obey. The second time that it's mentioned is the voice of the people. It's in verse 24. But then there's another time that it's used a little differently. Um, It's Saul's own voice. So let me tell you what you're going to combat when it's time to do God's will. First is the voice of God. God's going to make Himself clear through His Word, by His Spirit, through prayer, through the church, and through your circumstances. God is going to make His voice heard. God's people are never without His voice. He's going to make His voice clear and heard. But at the same time, there's going to be the voice, I put the voice of Saul. Let's hear the voice of Saul. I want you to come down and look in verse 20. Then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord. I want you to listen to me very carefully here. When your voice starts disagreeing with God, I want you to be extremely careful. Because you can talk yourself into anything. You can talk yourself into anything. And when your voice disagrees with God's voice, and you start talking to yourself and others, you are in some danger. Because this is called the voice of self Justification. Saul is lying. Saul knows it. Samuel knows it. God knows it. But what Saul is going to do is use his voice not to convince Samuel, not to convince God. Saul is going to use his voice to convince Saul. And Saul's most dangerous moment comes not at the voice of the people and not at the voice of the Lord. It's the voice of self-justification coming from within himself. And it is the point at which the whole narrative turns. 
And so these voices, and then the third one, the voice of the people, uh, and, and there's a lot I could say about that. It's just that here's what happens. Saul tried to blame his actions on the voice of the people. And he was trying to take the blame and remove his disobedience from himself and point at the sins of others and justify his sin because somebody else was sinning. And my brothers and sisters, we face this all the time. It is very easy to arrive at a situation and blame our sin on the actions of someone else. But when we stand before God in judgment, it's not going to go down that way. And so, these voices are dangerous. Now, what happens here? All right, my, my time, I want to be careful. What happens here is that Saul convinces himself. And something happens in Saul at this point. Listen to me. He is never the same again. It is a fundamental shift in his whole being. So much so. I'm going to get ahead of myself, but so much so that God and Samuel both grieve over the shift. The shift comes and God lays a label on the shift. And this is where it gets down. We, 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 we were able to say a minute ago, okay, 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 I'll agree with you, Bart. Uh, when I'm not doing what God is sending me for, then I am... Okay, but here's where we're going to get in some, some tough waters. What God is going to say is that that sinning is called idolatry. And He's going to say that while you're doing that, you are an idolater. Now, I know that we don't have some graven image that we're running to and bowing down and doing this. And so we're going, oh man, that can't be me. You're talking about the Buddhists or something, right? No, God is going to lay it out here in verses 22 and 23 in a way that we can't escape from when we are not doing what we were sent for. So he says in verse 22, and Samuel said, he's speaking the word of the Lord, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. When we do not do the mission He sent us on, we are insubordinate idolaters. How's that so? I felt like John Piper said it so well here. I'm going to give you these five. Let's go through them. Number one, disobedience places fear of man in place of fear of God. Saul said, I feared the people. I, I cared so much about what they thought of me. I cared so much about what they thought of me. I let them shape my character. This is called peer pressure. It's real. It's idolatry. Everybody has it. It's in every realm of life and work. It's in every realm of existence. 
Peer pressure is there and people's voices are there. And what will happen is, is the sin in your own heart will attach to the sin in their heart and the sin in your heart will justify itself by doing what they want. And it's idolatry because there's a replacement. I replace fear of man for the fear of God. Second, it elevates pleasure in things above pleasure in God. In other words... We're living out Romans chapter 2 where it says, for they exchanged, excuse me, chapter 1, where they exchanged the glory of God for the glory of the creation. In other words, when we lay our eyes on a person or a thing, and we will disobediently pursue a person or a thing, a place, a position, or some power, And we will pursue the pleasure of that thing above the pleasure of God's pleasure. Above the pleasure of God's pleasing. Then what we've done is we've created an idol. And we pursue it and we worship it. Third, it seeks a name for itself instead of a name for God. Some people say, no, that can't be true. I'm not seeking a name for myself in the things that I'm disobeying God in. It's not about me. Well, yeah, it is. Because, see, here's what's happening. You don't mind that God's name is being defamed by your sin. That's what chapter 2 of Romans says. For the name of God has been blasphemed among the Gentiles because of your behavior. And so what happens when we will not go on the mission God calls us to, and we will not do what God has said to do, here's what we say. We say, I'm not interested in any discrediting of God's name by my behavior. I'm just going to do what I'm going to do. And just ask for forgiveness later. But in the process, it's not our name that's defiled. It's God's. And very often, our name gets elevated. Look at what Saul's doing. When... Other Old Testament people accomplished something really big. They built an altar. That's what they did. When something really big happened in their life, they set up a... a and we, we studied these in, in, in Experience of God. They set up this marker, this spiritual marker, this, this thing that reminded them. What did Saul do? Look with me. In verse 12, And Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, and it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself. Other Old Testament saints, God does something great, they build an altar. What does Saul do? He builds an idol, a monument to himself. Not a remember God moment, but a remember me moment. And so, fourth, consults wisdom of self. This is why it's called divination. See, a diviner was a person who was supposed to give you something smarter than what God offered. That was what a diviner was. Why did you go and consult a medium or a diviner? Because that person could give you something smarter than what God had already revealed in His Word and through His prophets. And so you would go and consult them. What's happening in disobedience is maybe you didn't go to a a medium or, or to a psychic, but here's where you went. You went to yourself. And you consulted with yourself. And yourself disagreed with God. And so that's why it says rebellion is as the sin of divination because you've turned from consulting God for your future to consulting you. 
And after a little consultation with yourself, you know what you said? Let's do it! And God says, no. And finally, it sets more value on the dictates of self than on the dictates of God and thus attempts to dethrone God by giving allegiance to the idol of human will. In other words, while I'm consulting myself, guess who I bow my knee to? I bow my knee to Bart Walker. And I worship him above God. Because he's my idol. And that's why God goes to such great length to describe rebellion and disobedience in terms of divination and idolatry. Because what we want to say in our hearts is, I'm not guilty of that, man. I don't go to a psychic. Come on. I don't have any idols in my house. My Buddhist neighbors do. But let me tell you something. An idol in your heart is far more dangerous than an idol in your house. Because you can't hide an idol in your house. But you can hide an idol in your heart all day long. But God sees it. So what happens after this? Well, here's what happens. Number three. I said number one was the the, the sending. Number two was the, the sinning. And number three is the sorrow. There is a turning here. I want you to read it. I want you to see the beginning of the sorrow and I want you to see the end of the sorrow. The beginning of the sorrow is in verse 10. And and he tells the story of the beginning. He says, Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I regret that I've made Saul king. You don't hear God saying that a lot. But he says it. I regret that I've made Saul king. But he gives the beginning. He says, For he has turned Back from, and the way the Hebrew reads is, after me. With David, you get it described as a man, what? After God's own heart. Now here's, here's where you go astray. Here's where I go astray. When we are pursuing our happiness, satisfaction, joy, fulfillment, and mission in God, we will be happy in God. But when we start seeking it in anything else, These are the words that describe it. We turn aside from after Him. In other words, this is the question. What are you chasing today? What, What are you chasing? What is it that you want to land today that you think is going to make you happy? What is it you want to get? Because it's either God... Or it's vain. It's either the Almighty or it's some created thing with a temporal fix that will not ultimately make you happy. You see, God's not interested in our religion. He's interested in the happiness of our heart. And He knows we will not ever be happy going after anything but Him. And so His sorrow is that Saul has gone after something else. And God says, I I wish I hadn't made him king. Now, God knew what was coming, but God is experientially seeing it now and hurting and sorrowing. He's, He's condescending to feel the sorrow and the anguish of a man gone astray, who in his going astray is only headed for disaster. But look at Samuel. And Samuel was distressed and cried all night to the Lord. 
Now, my brothers and sisters, when we see somebody go astray, this is how it's supposed to look. When we see a brother or sister go astray, we're supposed to be crying to the Lord about them, not pointing fingers, but hurting in the depths of our heart as God does and as His true followers do. And so the beginning of the sorrow of Saul's life was no longer pursuing, no longer going after God. And here you have Samuel grieving. And you see the apex of his grief in chapter 15, verse 34. And we're going to bring this to a close now. Samuel went to Ramah, but Saul went up to his house at Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. For Samuel grieved over Saul. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Here God and Samuel Grieving because they know what's coming. The rest of Saul's life is going to be characterized by one thing. Grief. From this point on, Saul is only going to know grief. He's only going to know sorrow. And at the end of his days, the grief and the sorrow are going to overwhelm him and he's going to kill himself. And he's going to fail attempting to do so. God loves people. He's not trying to create a religion. He's pursuing individuals because they will never be happy without Him. And on this earth they can't have any temporal happiness and in eternity they will be forever eternally miserable. God is pursuing people because He loves them. And His grief over Saul is not because He was setting him up to fail. It was because He loved him. And Samuel loved him. It broke Samuel's heart so much he couldn't even bear to look at him again. And so here's the story. God is sending Neither we're doing what He sent us for or we're sinning. And the sinning can only bring sorrow. Would you bow with me? Andrew Peterson sings a song. It's called The Chasing Song. It's a great song. It's catchy, it's funny, lyrically it's genius, musically it's brilliant. But theologically, it's spot on. Because he talks about all the things people chase. And how when they find them, they're never satisfied, they're never happy. And then he makes this bleak admission in the chorus of the song. He says, I'm just always chasing me. And that might be where you are today. You may have shown up today and you've just been chasing you. Some kind of satisfaction that you're looking for in something that you want to own, have, possess, obtain. Something you want to relate to. Somewhere you want to be. Someone you want to have. And you are chasing it. And you're just really chasing yourself. And the sad thing is when you catch yourself, you will find that you've made yourself utterly miserable and perfectly unhappy. 
Because happiness is only found in a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. To know His love, to know Him, to know His affection, to embrace Him, to trust Him, to serve Him will be the ultimate happy, joyful fulfillment that He has intended from all of eternity for a person to have in Him. He's displayed it in His creation. He's offered it in Christ. But today you have to move. You have to leave your seat and where you are, you can't stay where you are and go with God and you have to chase God. You have to get up this morning and whether it is to come down this aisle or walk out that door, whichever it is in your response, it must be to chase after God. That's what made David happy and made him write the Psalms. Because he was a man after God's own heart. And as he found that sweetness, he would write, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He leadeth me beside still waters. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He restores my soul. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for Thou art with me. Thy rod, Thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table for me in the presence of my My cup, my cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall pursue me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Jesus said, I am that shepherd. Would you come to Him today? He will embrace you. He will wash you. He will forgive you. But you come to Him repentantly and trust Him. Would you today? Would you stand? Come to Jesus.